when investors, financial professionals, and discerning people need a big picture view of what's going on in the economy, they turn to John Malden. And for good reason. John has dedicated more than 30 years to keeping people informed about financial risk. Now, John's a visionary thinker, a noted financial expert, a New York Times best-selling author four times over, a pioneering online commentator, and the publisher of one of the first publications to provide investors with free, unbiased information and guidance, Thoughts from the Frontline. John is among the most widely read analysts of our time. He has written four New York Times bestsellers, and he hosts the must-see Strategic Investment Conference annually, maybe the most important gathering of its type for investors and forecasters in the world today. He's also known as the man with the best Rolodex in the business, and here he is, my good friend, John Malden. Welcome, John. Good friend. Thank you. That was, I was wanting to say, who are you introducing? That sounds better than the real world. Oh, I've known you for a while. I we think do. it's accurate. Yeah. We, we, we've been through a few wars. It's good. So how was Puerto Rico? Oh, you know, we moved there for financial reasons, but we should have moved there for the lifestyle. Uh, and, oh, yeah, the financial reasons are good. You know, my old boss, John Templeton. Yeah. He left New York and went to the Bahamas. And he, he said it, he did it for the spiritual nature of the people, which I'm sure that's part of the truth. Well, you know, I have really come to appreciate the people of Puerto Rico it, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I've traveled, I've been in 65 countries, but uh, when you're in France or your other countries and you try to learn something or speak the local language, they, you know, you get a look. In Puerto Rico, you say, como dice en español, so whatever, and they will stop what they're doing and they will give you an English-Spanish language lesson and they're happy to do it. I mean, I've never one time had somebody go, go away and leave me alone. You know, it's it just, they're just pleasant, fun people. It's a very relaxed, wonderful culture. I've, well, Sir John felt that way about the Bahamas. Yeah. He loved it. Now, we all know that he also went there for the tax situation. Right. And there's a tax advantage to living well, in Puerto I mean, Rico. It, 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 there is. Um, but he also said it gave him a different perspective, and he said his investment performance improved because he wasn't caught up in all the hustle bustle. I have more time to sit and think, and honestly, the neighbors that I'm with are some of the most amazing financial professionals I've ever been around. Um, we are if you're interested in this type of thing, we're crypto central. I mean, it's the center, it's the center of the universe for, for uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all that, because they just don't move there. Wow. And uh, I mean, they hold cryptocurrency local conferences in people's homes. There'll be 150 people show up and you're listening to the, here's the guy that started Ethereum, here's the guy that started uh, the NFTs. They're just on stage talking and telling you about how they went through that process. Who'd have ever thought that you moved to Puerto Rico and you improve your investment understanding? I can sit on the beach at the beach bar and pull together five, four or five guys, and I've done this before, you know, not at the same table, who are running $10 billion funds, the largest airplane leasing company in the world. Uh, I mean, just amazing minds. And they just sit and talk with you. It's just, it's, I mean, it's, you've 
you get to be part of the crowd. It's, it's, it's kind of a cool kid's place. Well, let's start talking. I mean, you, you've obviously gotten some good information. You wrote a recent piece, Shortages Are Relative. W- what do you see in the American economy? I'm getting ready to write a letter. I've got a um, reader of mine who's a friend, and he's saying, John, you just admitted in this letter and these other letters that Keynes was right. It was all about demand. Because what does the government do? They threw $6 trillion into it. They pumped up demand uh, over supply. You know, there are others who say supply is the answer. Well, that's not true either. Income's the answer. Profits are the answer. Um, I mean, we, we don't need more demand. We don't need more production. We need income. Supply and demand when you've got income, will work, it, work its way out. Now, what happened was we pushed $6 trillion in the economy different than the, the Fed. The Fed has bought, you know, four, six, five, six trillion dollars, but that shows back up on the Fed's balance sheet as excess bank reserves. It's not hot money. Now, technically, it could be loaned out. But banks can't find enough credit-worthy borrowers to loan money now. Uh, and they're coming up with more regulations. I mean, what's the big, our biggest problem is small banks can't loan money to people they used to loan money to. Uh, so we, we've squashed the ability of you know, local and, and small banks to loan money, uh, except and, and there's just not a cr- enough credit-worthy borrowers. So those bank reserves don't mean anything. It just shows up on the balance sheet of the reserve. The hot money that the federal government put in, that went to individuals who now got money in their hands. But we said, you can only really spend it on goods because, because of COVID, <laughs> you're not going to hotels, you're not buying, you, you can't go to restaurants, you, you can't do the normal spending that you would do as services. So we ended up buying about 15% more goods than we would normally buy. Wow, we're gonna have to take a break. When we come back, we'll keep going. Okay, John, you were telling us about the 15% increase in demand. Right, and, and you know, the subsequent drop in, in uh, purchases of, of services goods. But that demand, in, the, the demand in goods, there, was, there weren't any goods to be bought, if you will, because prior to COVID, the market had not sent a signal that says, oh, by the way, in six months, the government's going to pour all this money into it, and your demand for goods is going to go up. We were talking about a friend of ours whose business is up 15, 20 percent. Right. Um, I mean, we were talking, this is into the billions, his demand. But he's selling goods. He's right. selling stuff that people want. Well, um, we, we, people think, well, we can't get stuff through our ports. We're putting more stuff through our ports than we ever have. We're delivering more stuff than we, you know, just whatever the stuff is. So it's not just a supply chain problem. It is the fact it's, that it's, we're, it's a production problem. It's a production problem. We literally were not geared. Nobody had sent a signal to an entrepreneur, to a business owner, to whether it was Johnson & Johnson or whoever, said that we're going to need this. I mean, you know, you know, mom and pop of the corner, big guys. And so now we're struggling to catch up. Now we will catch up. And as over time, and you know, dear God, hopefully, COVID becomes a, a, a rear view window thing. We get out, we start spending money on s- services, 
travel, you know, we, the we economy's going to adjust. But you can hold up a $60,000 car for want of a one are, single chip. I'm told there are hundreds of acres of cars waiting for a chip or two. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are production facilities and wells. I mean, dear God, there's oil's at $80 and we, we don't see rigs up. Well, there's a labor problem. There's all sorts of pipeline pipe, issues. Pipeline issues. Yep. I mean, you know, it's not like our neighbors, or my former neighbor, now, but our friends here in Texas don't want to be drilling, uh, punching holes in the ground. They don't want to be drilling. They want to. I guarantee you, yeah. they're dry. They're desperate to get a rig and to punch a hole in the ground at eighty dollars. Um, it's they've got issues of getting all their stuff together. The maid at the hotel I was at in New York uh, last week, thirty dollars an hour. Well, does this create inflation like we've never, we haven't seen in 20, 30 years? It, it is inflation. Wages are sticky. Uh, a lot of prices are going to be sticky. And so what, what will happen is we're going to see a general reset in prices. 10, 15, 20%. I don't know where it's going to stop. Nobody does really. Uh, maybe more. And then I mean, for instance, I think that we could see in January, February, it's a seven, I think 7% inflation rate is really likely. An eight handle on inflation is possible, but not in March or April. Because now we're looking at year over year comparisons. And in March and April, the, the comparison started shooting up. We started getting higher inflation right. one year ago. Okay, I mean this year, and when when the year-over-year -year comparisons go come back in, we're not going to see. It's going to look like well, inflation's going down. Well, if you take a look on it two-year, you you're still looking at a. It's not going to feel like inflation's it's, going down. It's, it's not going to feel like inflation's going down because you're going to be. I mean, uh, you're paying ten dollars a pound for bacon here in the U.S. We're paying twelve in Puerto Rico. Wow. I mean, for a pound of bacon, and that's just bacon. That's not even the really fancy smoked jalapeno bacon that I like. Uh, well, what about this concept that you mentioned of the owner equivalent rents, OER? Okay, we measure inflation in housing by something called owner's equivalent rent. Right. And it was something developed in the late, in the mid, mid to late 70s and then it kicked in in 80s um, to get us away from the actual housing price by the way, uh, Europe and many other countries use actual housing prices. So there's, it's... But our house prices are up enormously. Our house prices are up enormously, but it hasn't been reflected in the OER models. It wasn't reflected uh, in the OER models in the 2004 to 2006, seven run-up. And I think we've now had two instances where OER was broken. If they had reflected actual housing prices, if it reflected actual housing costs and rental costs during those periods, the Federal Reserve would have seen high single-digit inflation. Now we would be seeing double-digit inflation. The Fed would be forced to come in and raise rates and to reduce accommodation. But now they can talk about it being temporary or whatever. Um, we need to re we get past this. You don't want to you don't want to change horses in the middle of of the battle. But when we get past this, we need to say 
is this really the correct way to measure inflation? Because if you look at shadow stats, huh? shadowstats.com, they did the 1970s. Is that, well, is it, that play in here? I like John Williams, a nice guy. But he uses, I, I'm, I'm going to use an economic term that your readers, our listeners here can understand. He uses a fudge factor to determine what he thinks that inflation would be under those circumstances. He's not actually measuring it under the old ways. There's, there's a fudge factor in there. Now, but there's got to be some element to that because we're not. There, there is. There, I'm, I'm not arguing that there's not. Yeah. Okay. Um, there should be. Inflation, if we were measuring home prices or actual what we're seeing in the rent markets, uh, inflation would be 9, 10%, maybe more. Which is what it feels like, Which, at yeah. least that. Well, I mean, especially if you're going to the grocery store, it, it's all up. Uh, I mean, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to hear your That's tra- inflation what the real is transitory. World feeling. That's the real world, you know. Um, uh, I've got two kids that are moving to different towns looking for apartments, and they're going, Dad, it's so expensive. <laughs> it <laughs> is. Because uh, everybody's raising their prices. Um, well, we're going to have to take another break. When we okay. come back, let's talk a little more about inflation and then the labor side of things, okay. because you, you touched on that. So let's take a break. John, it's pretty obvious. There, there's inflation. You're feeling it in your holiday dinner. Everybody's feeling it in the gas prices and so forth. And the president just reappointed Jerome Powell. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think when he's approved, he'll feel more free to let a little bit of his inner Volker come out. Not a lot. I mean, he's got to get through the approval process. He doesn't want to push anything. But I will tell you this. The press release, the president's commentary, when he released the I'm appointing Jerome Powell, Every mention of his name was accompanied by, and Dr. Bernard, who he's appointing that. as vice chairman. Right. And he was, a, he was almost equating the two. That was a sop to the progressive friends who wanted uh, uh, Bernard. But he, he just kind of cut the knees out there. I mean, now, I don't think Jerome Powell is going to feel that. I think he's going to be pretty upset (laughs) Um, at the way that announcement was done. He was dissed. Uh, I mean, everybody looked at it. It's almost like he appointed uh, uh, Lael Powell, you know. Uh, It was just, they were conflating the two. But at some point, they're going to have to lean in a little bit more, start reducing uh, uh, the... purchases that they're making, getting to the, getting us to the place where they can start raising rates. I mean, they've got no bullets in their guns now if we have a problem. Uh, it is, it, it will be seen, it's going to, it remains to be seen. Because there's, if you look at the data, there's nothing in the data that says we're going to have a recession next year. I mean, there's no uh, inverted yield curve. There's none of the normal stuff except at this period of time, if you go back to 2000, if you go back to 1992-3, if you go back to uh, 2006, every time the Fed has reached a place like this, uh, 
the next thing they did was not raise, and, and inflation was happening, the next thing they did was not raise rates, but to lower them, um, which means, of course, that we went into a recession. Now there's no room to lower rates. Right. We've gone 40 years with rates declining. Yeah, well, and... and An entire generation has seen nothing but falling rates. And, and my personal opinion is, for other macroeconomic reasons, we're going to see lower rates in, the, in our future, not next year. Probably not the year but after that. But that's the inevitable that's, direction. That's the inevitable direction because the economy is going to be slowing. We'll be lucky to grow at 1% a year for the next 10 years. Wow. Uh, wow. How does that impact the stock market? Well, it impacts the stock market in the sense that since growth is slower, uh, profits will grow slower. That means that earnings forecasts will have to be pulled back in. Multiples will be pulled back in. So... The, side, the stock market can go sideways for a long time. It can correct and then start to recover. Um, but the good old days of having uh, low rates and rapid growth, which allow for very high multiples, may be gone for a while. It, it, and, and number one, if you look at NASDAQ, there's like 30 uh, companies in the NASDAQ 100 right now that are at all-time lows. I mean, uh, multi, multi two or three year lows, because the, the Nasdaq is being inflated by six, seven stocks. Right. And when those stop inflating, when those stop, and I don't know that they will. I mean, but if they can, do, can, that, can, you, yeah. can you tell me if Apple's going to go down? I don't know. Um, but that that market cap, because it's a market cap weighted index. Okay. For for myself personally. And what I tell my friends is, friends don't let friends buy index funds. <laughs> okay? You just, just do not buy an index fund. If you want to buy a stock, say, I want to own this stock, this individual stock, specifically for this reason. You need to be very selective. You need to be very stock selective. Stock picker's or, market. I, I, and, and if you looked at my portfolio, I own four stocks. That's it. Now... I've got managers that I don't know how many hundred stocks I'm in. Right. So I pick managers and they buy stocks. But they're all active managers. They're all. You don't have any all passive active managers. I don't have any passive managers. Um, I mean, I know that I'm in. I've got one manager that dabbles in cannabis stocks, and I would never buy a cannabis stock. But he's done real well with it, so good for him. I've got some guys that buy crypto. I've, I haven't bought a crypto, but you know. Well, that's you fine. may own some because the oh, manager. That's what I'm saying. I, I own some somewhere down in there, but that's why I buy managers uh, and recommend managers who are good at what they do. Uh, I would you make this statement? That going forward from your perspective, you need financial advice. The average person needs a financial advisor. I think people have gotten too used to being, I'll just throw money, I'll put it in the index funds, and, and, it, and it goes up. they got the Dave Portnoy thing, stocks only go up. And I think that's a dangerous philosophy. Uh, right now, you can buy really good management for half of what it used to be or less. Right. I mean, you're, we're both in the business. Uh, my fees compared to what they were 20 years ago are literally 
25, 30% of what they used to be. I mean, they're just way, way down. We've all, been, we've all had our fees compressed. Um, and, and frankly, getting a good manager is a great decision. You get it out of your hair. So pay more attention on picking the manager. Spend as much time as you, you would picking a stock as you would picking a manager. Uh, and um, you'll, you'll do far better off. Now, I buy, buy my, all you'd notice that my four stocks I own, they're all biotech of one form or another. Um, and because I understand that world and I have connections and people that can do that. But, um, you know, if I wanted to buy other forms of technology, uh, I'll drop a name here. I let Kathy Wood do it, and she's got some private accounts that you can get access to uh, in addition to her ETFs. Uh, I mean, yes, she's better at figuring out robotics and all the other stuff that I don't do. That's fine. I'll go do that. Well, we have to wrap up, but I want to see if I've gotten the two big takeaways. One of them is it's going to be a challenging economic environment. For the decade, absolutely. And I think the latter half of this decade is going to be that period of time when we're going to have to rationalize that great that reset, that great reset that I talk about uh, for, for a lot of reasons. It's the end of the fourth turning. Uh, there's a lot of cycles beginning to come up. So it's going to be a very, very bumpy road. And... You as an individual, you as an investment manager, your goal is to get as much of your money that you have to the other side of that in terms of buying power. So that's the second point, is the average person really needs good financial advice. Yes, yes. And, and, uh, and like I said, don't choose a manager because you like him. Everybody likes Kevin Freeman. It's easy to pick Kevin. But you want to pick somebody, not because he's, you like him, but because they're good. Yeah. They've really got their mojo together. Well, John, it's always great to see it's, you. I it's appreciate it. It's fun to be with you. All right, so here's the point. Do you have a financial advisor? What's in your portfolio? We're training investment professionals to understand all of the geopolitical risks. And we'll invite John to come and be a part of our NSIC training class. If you want to nominate your advisor, if you have one, nominate them at economicwarroom.com forward slash advisor. And if you're a subscriber to our free battle plan, you'll get a recap of this episode. We'll put links into John's letters and where you can learn more about what he's talked about. You can subscribe to that at economicwarroom.com. It's free. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room. 